Good morning. You take the, t- please take, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 9. Well, I can't think of a better way to start a new year than uh, worshiping together with my church family. Um, other than, the only better thing would be to have my family here to worship too. Um, my wife is home with a few boys that are getting over sickness. And I just want to start here um, by letting you know that I we, we love you. Um, Suzanne, she was here. She could agree with me that uh, we, we so love you, our church family, and appreciate you. It's been, so it'll be four years uh, next week that we moved out to California. It's hard to believe. It's gone by really fast. Um, you mean so much to us. You've been our family. Um, you've watched our boys grow up. You've helped them grow up, continuing to do so. Um, you mean so much to us. And just wanted you to know that I love you. Um, you know, with each passing year, I'm reminded of the importance of loving those around us. Um, the, the fact is, we don't know when will be our last year on earth. Um, you know, unfortunately, I, I'm sure many of you can think of one or more people who are no longer here this year. And that is, that's sobering. That's That's sad. Um, Especially when we consider the fact that so many people die um, and pass into an eternity without Christ. It's sobering to realize that even though, you know, we haven't lived here through half a day um, in this year, already this morning somewhere around 88,000 people have already passed into eternity. And I'm certain that many of those people are, are facing God's punishment for their sin forever. You know, past president of the school where I graduated uh, seminary was known for often repeating this statement. The most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. Do you ever stop to think about that? Because that's what we're going to do today. We're going to stop and think about that. As we start another year, I want to encourage you from God's word to have a heart for the lost. Um, a heart that reflects the heart of God. You know, this sermon is not meant to make you feel guilty about not sharing Jesus uh, with others, but I do hope um, and I pray that today God will, he will ignite your heart. He will ignite my heart uh, with an unquenchable passion for his harvest of lost souls this year. Let's begin by just asking God to do that in in each of our hearts today. Heavenly Father, every single day is a gift from your hand, and we thank you for it. God, we also thank you for the gift of your word. Your words bring forth life. Um, They have ever since the very beginning in creation. Your words are like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Uh, your word is like a sword, that, a two-edged sword that cuts and divides and uh, pierces our heart. And your, your word is like a fire. And I pray that you would ignite our hearts with a passion for lost souls this morning through your word. I pray this through Christ. Amen. All right, you should be in Matthew 9. Um, We are going to be reading verses 35 through 38 here in a moment Um, in continuation of my uh, sermon series through the book of Matthew. Uh, But before I do that, um, let me just give you some context um, for some of you that haven't been here with the sermon series, for others that have and uh, maybe forget. Uh, I think this will help us understand how this passage fits in uh, Matthew's gospel. So context, this passage brings us to the end of Uh, Matthew chapter 8 and 9. It's the last few verses. Um, In Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew has given us three sets of healing miracles. If you look down at your Bible with me, you'll see that at the end of each set of healing miracles, Matthew includes a section on following Jesus, followers of Jesus. So after Jesus heals the leper, the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, in in chapter 8, verse 1 through 17— 
then Matthew presents the cost to follow Jesus. He, he talks about how it, uh, following Jesus impacts your lifestyle. It'll even in, impact your closest relationships. Then, um, after three more miracles, uh, Matthew gives us the call to follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector. Um, he explains that he didn't come to call the righteous. That's what we're, well, those that thought they were righteous. But he came to call sinners. And then finally, after three more healing miracles, Matthew wraps up these chapters with um, the crop to follow Jesus. He, he literally describes his future followers as a, as a harvest, a, a crop that's waiting to be gathered, a flock that needs a shepherd. So this passage that we're studying today, it, it serves as, as like a conclusion to chapters 8 and 9, but it's even more than that. It, it serves as a conclusion um, to Matthew's entire section, chapters 5 through 9. You know, Matthew has kind of marked off the beginning and the ending of these chapters with almost identical verses, kind of like bookending them. And I've included those in your handout. Um, they're almost identical. By the way, note on your handout, I'm sorry that you only have point two and four. That's all there is. There is no one and three, if you're wondering. Um, that was my mistake. I'm just glad that I included January 1st, 2023 and didn't mess up the date. So I feel proud about that. Uh, but yeah, I messed up on the, uh, on the numbers there. So sorry about that. You can see on your handout there are two verses that are almost identical, Matthew 4.23 and then Matthew 9.35. I'll just read 9.35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So then these chapters, they're like a package that summarize Jesus' kingdom ministry. Uh, his teaching about the citizens of the kingdom uh, his proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and, and healing that authenticates the ministry of the kingdom, of the king who has come. So first of all, um, it's clear that our passage, it's a conclusion. Um, but secondly, it's also a transition. What do I mean by that? In the following chapters, after chapter 9, um, verse 10, in, in chapters 10 and 11, Jesus is going to be sending out some of his disciples to replicate his ministry and advance his kingdom through teaching, proclaiming, and healing. They're going to do exactly what they have seen him do. And our passage today is, it's the transition that connects Jesus' ministry with that of his followers. And in it, we see the motivation, in this passage that we're studying, we see the motivation behind that ministry. It, it, this gives us Jesus' heart for the harvest, um, a heart that he wants his disciples to have, a heart that he wants each of us to have. So let's read it together. Matthew 9, verse 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What is a heart for the harvest? First of all, it is a heart of compassion. A heart for the harvest is a heart of compassion. When Matthew says that Jesus had compassion for them, he's using a word that's almost exclusively used with reference to Christ and his heart for people. Throughout the gospel accounts, it's this compassion of Christ that, that moves him to act. And in fact, some translations, maybe the one you have in front of you, actually use the phrase, he was moved with compassion. So what was Jesus' compassion? Let me give you three examples through the Gospels um, to show us. First of all, in Matthew 14, Jesus has just heard about his cousin, John the Baptist, um, being killed. And verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate, desolate place by himself. I mean, I'm guessing he's, he's grieving. I mean, he just lost his cousin. Um, and, and it says when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot. 
from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Instead of seeing an unwelcome crowd, he sees those that are in need, and his heart of compassion compels him to reach out and to heal them. To heal them. In Matthew 15, uh, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds brought their, uh, their sick to him. And after healing them all, verse 32 says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Instead of seeing this bothersome crowd that forgot to pack food, he sees those that are hungry, and his heart of compassion compels him to reach out and provide. One more. In Luke 7, Jesus is about to enter the town of Nain uh, with a great crowd following him, and he sees a grieving mother, and a funeral procession for her son. Verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he, com- then he came and touched the, the bier, which was carrying the body, um, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Instead of seeing a hopeless situation here, he, he sees a woman who's grieving, and his heart of compassion compels him to reach out and and give resurrection life. Compassion is the heart of Jesus. The Greek word for the word compassion, it's really interesting. Originally, um, it had this literal literal reference to someone's bowels, um, uh, to their guts. Basically, the, the innermost part of someone. You say, I love you with all my heart, okay? You don't say, I love you with all my bowels, but that's the same idea here. It, this reference the core of who somebody is. A Puritan, Richard Sibbs, puts it this way. When Christ saw the people in ministry, his bowels yearned within him. The, the works of grace and mercy in Christ, they came from his bowels first. That is, Whatsoever Christ did, he did out of love, grace, and mercy. He did it inwardly from his very bowels. Compassion, it's the heart of Jesus. So what is it about the crowds in our passage that stirred up Jesus' heart of compassion? What did he see? What did Jesus see? Verse 36 says, When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew uses two words here um, and, and a metaphor to describe what Jesus saw as he looked out on the crowds of people there in the cities and villages of Galilee. First, he saw that they were harassed. Harassed, this word that Matthew used, uses has the idea of being, uh, being bothered, uh, being troubled by someone, um, really to the point of being distressed or bewildered. So you have harassed, and then second word, um, helpless, refers to um, a desperate or abandoned condition. Um, it comes from the Greek word, which means to be, uh, to be thrown down or, or cast down. Like in Luke 4, when the demon threw a person down on the ground before coming out of him. It's, this word isn't always violent in nature, but it does point to this place of desperation. So think, think someone who's, who's laid out, um, laid aside. They're, they're in a heap on the ground, unable to help themselves. And then Matthew, he gives a metaphor that connects those two words to a picture. He shows us what it looks like, what it looks like in the animal world. He says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There are a few people in our congregation um, that own or have owned goats in the past, um, which have some similarities to sheep. But most of us aren't very familiar with the lifestyle of these types of animals. And so as it relates to our passage, I Today, I want to share um, just a few things about the lifestyle of sheep. I'm going to get corrected afterwards, I know, by some of you. Um, 
but as I was learning about this, I want to share a few of these things um, because I think it's going to help us better understand Jesus' heart of compassion. We'll see what I mean. A compassion that we must have if we want to have Jesus' heart for the harvest. So first of all, sheep are grazing animals, right? Um, in the ancient Near East, they would have to forage for their food, uh, which means they, you know, they wander in search of food. Um, sheep have a really poor sense of smell, um, and they rely a lot on their eyesight to identify predators. Oftentimes, there will be a few sheep in a herd that will be on the lookout um, for the others. However, because these animals graze um, and they forage, um, the flock will often, as they search for food, they'll kind of naturally just scatter, move farther and farther away in search of food. And as a result, it's more difficult for them to, for them to notice a predator. They might be kind of isolated. Um, and this is where the shepherd um, and, and probably his dog uh, played such a vital role in the protection of the sheep. You know, Psalm 23 um, describes how Yahweh is a good shepherd who leads us safely in paths of righteousness, who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to fear danger or evil because of his presence, because of his protection, his rod and his staff give comfort and courage. The, the point here is that, that sheep are a good picture of the crowds that Jesus saw because without a shepherd that was watching over the sheep and keeping them from, from scattering, becoming isolated, um, they would be in danger of being harassed and even killed. The shepherd kept watch over the sheep. He provided protection. There's another um, thing that you need to know about sheep, and that is that sometimes... Uh, they get on the ground and they can't get back up again. Um, you know, this is referred to as being a cast sheep. Um, sheep are uh, ruminants, which means that they chew their cud. They often sit down on the ground. Um, they regurgitate their food and then from their rumen stomach, and then they chew it up again, which is kind of gross. But um, they, they do this hundreds of times uh, throughout the day. And sometimes they get their short, stubby little legs in a position that they can't get out from. And so um, they're stuck. They're on the ground. They're a cast sheep. And you can imagine how dangerous this would be. Um, what a vulnerable position they could be in. Other times, uh, they'll fall or trip. Remember in the terrain in Israel, um, as some of you who have been there could probably tell us, is it's, it's kind of rocky, similar to some of the hills around here. At least part of it is there in Israel. And if sheep happens to fall um, to trip and fall on its, on its side, on its back, um, it can't right itself. It can't get back up. Sheep are unable to get back up. It'll just lie there helplessly with its little legs sticking straight up until someone comes to give assistance um, or a predator finds an easy kill. Do you remember what the word helpless means? Just a few minutes ago I explained to be cast down, to be laid out on the ground. Sheep are literally helpless without a shepherd. That is every person without Christ. Hopeless and helpless. Um, I want to show you a picture of a sheep on its back because I want you to remember what it looks like to be helpless. I realize it may seem kind of funny, um, but this is the result of scattered sheep. And without a shepherd to come and give help, this sheep is going to die. That's serious. And that is the motivation for Jesus' compassion. When he saw the crowds, you can take it down. So, um, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. <clears throat> now, this is not the first time that we find this concept of um, scattered sh shepherdless sheep in the Bible. Uh, it's actually a metaphor that God uses many times throughout the Old and New Testaments. Um, and so I, what I'd like to do is, is show you a few of those passages in the Old Testament, because I, th I think it gives some help, really helpful context for its use in Matthew 9. So please turn with me to, um, to no, Numbers 27, if you would. Numbers 27. 
This passage, Numbers 27, comes um, after a census uh, where we find that all those who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their lack of faith have died. Uh, God tells Moses to go up into a certain mountain so he can see the land of Canaan because he won't be able to go up into it uh, since he had sinned at the waters of Meribah. If you remember, he had struck the rock. And so uh, Moses here recognizes that God's people are going to need a new leader. And in verse 16, Moses says, Numbers 27, verse 16, Moses says, Let the Lord, let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Moses has been a shepherd of sheep. He's also been a shepherd of of people leading the children of Israel. And he realizes that God's people need a shepherd. And who does God provide as a shepherd to lead his people? Who's that person? God appoints Joshua. In Hebrew, Yeshua, who pictures for us the coming of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? So this passage shows us that, that Moses, who represents the law, could not take the people of God into the promised land. God would provide a new shepherd to take them into the land of promise, and his name was Yeshua. All right, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm just touching on these. There are other passages, Zechariah and Jeremiah, that reference sheep scattered without a shepherd. But I think these, are, these will give you a helpful perspective as we look at Matthew 9. This entire chapter here, Ezekiel 34, uses the metaphor of sheep and shepherds. Um, God is having Ezekiel prophesy against those religious leaders in Israel that had failed in their job as shepherds of God's people. Uh, We don't have time to read the entire chapter, um, but notice with me um, the following verses. I'm just going to read a few for you. First, starting at verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek them for them. Not only have Israel's religious leaders, referred to here as, as shepherds, let the sheep be scattered so that the wild beasts eat them, but verse 10 says that the, sh- the shepherds were eating their own sheep. In other words, the the religious leaders were taking advantage of the people that they were supposed to care for. Verse 11 to 12 continues by giving us God's response. What is he going to do about it? Ezekiel 34, 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Does that sound a little bit like the the parable of the lost sheep? Yahweh, God, will go and seek and rescue his sheep that have been scattered in the darkness. But he'll do more than that. Look at verse 23. He says, I will set up for them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord God, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Okay, remember, Ezekiel is prophesying roughly 400 years after King David has died. Who is he talking about? King David is going to be raised up. He's predicting the coming of another shepherd king from the line of David. So here in Ezekiel, Let's to pull back. What are we talking about here? Um, God uses this metaphor of sheep and shepherd to address the failure, the selfishness of religious leaders, to give the the pro- and to give the promise that He will shepherd His sheep, and He'll do it by appointing a a prince, a son of the king, a, among them that comes from the house of David. And so you open Matthew. Oh, Matthew opens his gospel in chapter one with a genealogy that points to Jesus as what the son of David. 
Chapter 2 shows us that Jesus is born in the city of David, Bethlehem, and he fulfills Micah's prophecy that out of Bethlehem would come a ruler who would, what? Shepherd my people, Israel. You begin to see how Jesus is that shepherd who would come to gather scattered sheep. He came to seek and save those who were lost. Ultimately, as the good shepherd, he would lay down his life for the sheep. John 10, verse 11. So let's go back to Matthew 9 and wrap this point up um, by making just a few connections here. Back in Matthew 9, verse 36 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Who claimed to be the shepherds of the people there in Galilee and throughout Israel during Jesus' day? Who would that have been? Who's religious leaders? It's the scribes. It was the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the day. And yet, just like in Numbers, when Moses, who represented the law, could not shepherd God's people and lead them into the promised land. Just like in Ezekiel, where religious leaders were failing to shepherd properly. Here in Matthew 9, it's the scribes and Pharisees, the religious experts in the law that are failing to shepherd the sheep of Israel. Not only are they failing as shepherds, they're actually taking advantage of the sheep. I think that one of the saddest things about our world today is not just that people are like sheep, scattered and helpless, but that many people have, um, I think we've like looked to, to shepherds, to, to relig- religious leaders um, that they are following, who, like the Pharisees, are actually not helping them in their neediness. They're taking advantage of them and offering something that only Jesus can provide. That is heartbreaking. Religious leaders in our day go around promoting one of three primary lies. One, they claim that people are not that bad and that religion is it's, um, it's just a nice add-on to your life. Maybe you've thought that at some point. It's just a good thing to, to have this structure, to have community, right? Religion is, is good. It'd kind of be like a shepherd who comes to the cast sheep on the ground and says, you're, you're doing great, and here's a blanket to keep you warm. That's not going to protect them from coming danger. It's a lie. The second lie would be that there's actually no danger. Um, it's like the shepherd who says um, to the scattered sheep, go and explore, you know, follow your heart. There's no judgment here and no danger to come. That's a lie. And I would say most of our culture has actually bought into that, that that there's no reckoning. And then finally, the third lie that religious leaders um, of all different faiths promote in our day, including some that call themselves Christian, is that you just need to do a certain list of good things. You need to be a good person. That's the key. Is it, um, this is like a shepherd who tells the cast sheep, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Stand up. When in fact, they, they can't do that by themselves. The problem with each of those lies that the world has, has bought into today is that they fail to point to Jesus. The only one who can get lost sheep, gather lost sheep, and rescue those that are harassed and helpless. Without Jesus, millions of religious people are going to hell this year. That is heartbreaking. And if we want a heart for the harvest, a heart for unsaved people, for lost sheep, we first we need to recognize the plight of people who are lost in their sin. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see what Jesus saw? Do you see in the world today what Jesus saw? If not, it's probably because of one of two reasons. Either, either one, we've, we've insulated ourselves from unsaved people, or number two, we've ignored their desperate condition of uns. Um, and... and I've fallen into this trap as well. 
Um, my application is for me um, as well as for you today, and it's this, to ask God to open our eyes so that we can see the plight of crowds that are scattered like sheep without a shepherd, that are, the sight of their need would compel our hearts of compassion. Um, you may say, how, how, do I, how do I have that compassion? <laughs> I want the compassion of Jesus. If, you have been, if you've been saved, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ is in you. I believe that you have Jesus' heart of compassion for people's souls, but either because of your fear or your busyness, we have, you know, we, we've insulated ourselves. We've ignored people all around us that are helplessly in need of a good shepherd. And so I pray that each of us would open our eyes, see those who are helpless and hopeless, and that we would in, ha- in fact have a heart of compassion that reflects the heart of Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to a church family here, um, because this is the church, um, but the reality is that there may be some here today who've, who actually are in that helpless category. <laughs> Maybe you've denied it for, um, for years. Yes, I'm one of his own. But you have bought into the lies that this world has, has given. Can I plead with you to turn to the shepherd, the savior of your soul? Turn before it's too late. That is, I, I cannot imagine you walking out of here today um, in danger of suffering under the punishment of God forever because you failed to come to Jesus. So let me plead with you. Would you come to Jesus today? The good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so, brothers and sisters, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you go and, and show, have compassion for, for others? After seeing the crowds as sheep without a shepherd and exemplifying a heart for the harvest through his compassion in verses 35 to 36, Jesus speaks to his disciples and shows us that a heart for the harvest is, is a heart of compassion. But number two, it's a heart of, it's a heart of intercession. Um, we've moved from the flock to the fields in this second metaphor. And this will be shorter um, as far as my points go. Um, but I want to I show you here the, a heart of intercession. In verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, would you look with me? Verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, before we talk about Jesus' command to, to pray um, and intercede, we need to answer the question, what's, what's the nature of the harvest that Jesus is talking about? Um, most of the time when the Bible speaks, um, uses the language of, of reaping a harvest, um, it's, it's usually one of the prophets that's speaking, and it's referring to God's judgment on the nations. Let me give you a few examples. One would be Jeremiah 51, uh, verse 33. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it is trodden. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest will come. That harvest, it's referring to destruction. Uh, another example is Joel chapter 3. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And then you have the, the end times judgment that is described in Revelation 14, where the grape harvest will one day be thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. That's what God's word says. And however, Matthew 9, I would say it seems to be different. Um, and, and I'll admit here, some, there's some people that view this as another reference to judgment, this, this harvest in Matthew 9. Um, but to me, and I could be wrong, but in this passage, I, I see that Jesus, he seems to have a view of the harvest that um, it's positive <laughs> um, and it's current um, rather than eschatological um, and negative. In other words, he's expecting the harvesting to take place immediately. And, and as we find in the next chapter, it will be accomplished by his followers, not by angels at the end of the age. So um, 
So this um, has a reference to some um, something that's positive, and I, I would compare this less to Revelation 14 and more to John 4. Actually, would, would you turn this, turn there with me? This will be the last passage I have you turn to, um, John chapter 4. So we talk about the, the nature of this harvest that God wants to send laborers into. John 4 is a beautiful passage um, where Jesus meets a woman at the well outside of the Samaritan city of Sychar um, while his disciples are in the city buying food. And after Jesus talks with her, he explains that he's the Messiah. He's able to give her eternal life uh, like a spring of living water that never runs dry. Um, she ran back to the city to spread the good news, and, and she starts bringing a crowd to Jesus. In fact, um, if you want to see a visual of this, uh, you can see Abby's artwork out there in the lobby. Um, the far right picture is, um, has the, the water still like jostling there on the, on the well, the wall of the well, and the woman running to, running to the city. Let's pick up in verse 31. Um, John 4, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They're probably looking at this crowd coming out, and they're like, come on, you got to eat something before they get here. Um, and, and Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I can imagine Jesus, he's like pointing to this crowd of people that's like coming out to him. And he's like, oh, guys, look, lift up your eyes, look. The fields are white for harvest. He continues, already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Uh, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Uh, this reminds me of the passage in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, Paul says, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives um, the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. As we go out into the harvest, we don't know if we're planting or we're watering or if we're harvesting, but we can all rejoice because it's God's field. It's God's harvest, and we're his workers. So back in John 4, verse 39 gives the conclusion. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. There was a great harvest because of the woman's testimony. They asked Jesus to stay a few days, and many more believed because of his word. So first of all, I think we can view the, the nature of, of this reaping as as positive thing, uh, something that's to be done while the harvest is ripe. Um, secondly, Jesus shows us that we need a heart of intercession because the harvest is is plentiful. Um, it's it's hard work. Harvesting looked very different in the first century in Israel than it does today. Um, Today, Israel is a world leader in agricultural research and development, uh, so they have access to machines that make job so much easier and so much faster. For example, a modern combine of those machines, um, apparently it can harvest about 30 acres of wheat an hour, um, while by comparison, it would probably take a person three days to reap one acre by hand. Um, harvesting the ha by hand with a scythe is incredibly tedious, um, back-breaking labor. It's rewarding, but it's, it's really hard work. Never done it, but I've heard it is. Um, in verse 37, Jesus observes that laborers are needed in the harvest because the harvest is plentiful. The Jewish historian Josephus calculated that in Galilee, there were probably at least 3 million people living in about 204 cities and villages. Jesus had been traveling throughout these cities and villages, but the, the harvest was plentiful. And so up to, up to this point, Jesus is basically the only harvester. I mean, maybe John the Baptist as well, but um, the need is massive. And so in chapter 10, he's going to send out labors into the harvest. And he's going to start with, with his disciples, sending them out. 
But before he sends them out, he gives them um, a command. Instead of telling them to go, he says, what? He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why does he say that? Why not just send them out? This is part of God's method. If we want to have a heart for the harvest, I believe we must have a heart of intercession. Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, which communicates the fact that the need is, it's, it's, it's both urgent and it's important. But why, why is prayer so important to reaching God's harvest? What do you think? I think there are a few reasons. Number one, prayer reminds us that it's the Lord's harvest. If you have unsaved family or or friends um, that you have shared the gospel with many times before, you know that, you know, we can plant the seed, but we cannot make it grow. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, And I think we need to be reminded to to pray to the Lord of the harvest as a recognition that, that he is the one who brings new life. He's the one that brings growth. A heart of intercession admits that God needs to do a work in people's hearts. That's the first reason that we pray. But you'll notice that <clears throat> Jesus doesn't, doesn't actually focus on prayer for the harvest. What does he say? He tells them to pray for God to send laborers into the harvest. Why? Because while prayer reminds us that it is the Lord's harvest— This type of prayer also reminds us that the Lord of the harvest chooses to use workers, including us. This has really been eye-opening for me um, because while I've prayed for unsaved family and friends um, as well as the community and the world at large for years, what I haven't done is regularly intercede, regularly pray for God to send more laborers to reach those people. I haven't really been following God's model. This is so important, though, and it, it's huge when it, when it clicked for me. If you're sitting here today and you have a family member or a friend or a coworker, and God has given you compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd, but you've not been able to reach them with the gospel. Everybody's hands go up, right? Let me encourage you to pray for more laborers because it may be that you have planted, but someone else is supposed to water. Someone else will actually lead them to the Lord of the harvest. You know what that does? It infuses fresh hope into my prayers for those people who I've shared Christ with, you know, many times before. Maybe there is someone else God has to share the gospel with them. I pray for that. And secondly, it it compels me to be one of those laborers because maybe someone who doesn't even know me is praying that God would send a labor into their friend's life and I'm that person. If you have a heart of intercession for God to send out labors into his harvest, if you are praying regularly for God to send them out, you will be cultivating a heart for the harvest yourself. as we come to the end of our sermon. Um, it's my hope that, that God, through his word today, has ignited in you a passion for the harvest, maybe just like an awareness of the harvest, a reminder, um, hopefully a, a heart of compassion for scattered, helpless sheep, and finally a heart of intercession for the lost. As we close, I, I just want to re- read a um, a piece from Amy Carmichael. Some of you know her. She was a missionary um, to India in the late um, 19th century, early 20th century. Um, she ministered there for like 55 years. I think 12 of those years, she cared for like 130 children. And um, over the course of her ministry, I like hundreds of kids that she rescued. Um, one night she had a dream, I think really captures her heart for the harvest, and I hope it would be mine as well. Um, And so I'm going to read for you her dream. I stood on a grassy precipice, 
And at my feet, a crevice broke down into infinite space. I looked but saw no bottom, only clouds, shapes black and furiously coiled, and great shadow-shrouded hollows and unfathomable depths. And back I drew, dizzy at the depth, and then I saw forms of people moving in single file along the grass. They were making for the edge. There was a woman with a baby in her arms and another little child holding on to her dress. And she was on the very verge. Then I saw that she was blind. She lifted her foot for the next step and it trod air. She was over, and the children over with her. Oh, they cry as they went over. Then I saw, I can't see, then I saw more streams of people flowing from all quarters. All were blind, stone blind, and all made straight for the crevice's edge. They were shrieks as they suddenly knew in themselves that they were falling and a tossing up of helpless arms, catching, clutching at empty air, but some, of, some went over quietly and fell without a sound. Then I wondered with a wonder that was simple agony why no one stopped them at the edge. I could not. I was glued to the ground. I could not call, though I strained and tried. Only a whisper would come. And then I saw that along the edge there were guards set at intervals. But the intervals were too great need for laborers in his harvest. There were wide, unguarded gaps between, and over these gaps the people fell in their blindness, quite unwarned, and the green grass seemed blood-red to me, and the gulf yawned like the mouth of hell. Then I saw, like a little picture of peace, a group of people under some trees with their backs turned towards the gulf. They were making daisy chains. Sometimes when a piercing shriek cut the quiet air and reached them, it disturbed them. They thought it rather vulgar noise. And if one of their numbers started up and wanted to go and do something to help, then all the others would pull that one down. Why, why should you get all excited about that? You must wait for a definite call to go. You haven't finished your daisy chain. It would be really selfish, they said, to leave us to finish the work alone. May we not be that group of people. <clears throat> my prayer that God would grow in us a heart for the harvest. Spurgeon said, the world is dying, the grave is filling, hell is boasting, and yet you have the gospel. Can it be that you do not care to win souls, do not care whether men are damned or saved? The Lord wake us from this stony-hearted barbarity to our fellow men and make us yearn over them, care about them, and pray about them, and work for them, till the Lord shall arise and send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We are sobered by the reality of lost souls that are slipping into eternal darkness. But we're encouraged with the hope of the gospel that Jesus made a way, that the shepherd gave his life for the sheep. And we have been commissioned to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so we pray that you would send laborers into your harvest, that you would send us God, as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thank you, Father, for showing us the need and promising to, to give us your, um, your Holy Spirit, your, your presence to go with us and this all-important task of reaching the harvest for Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. As we close today, um, I'll just, um, just remind you that 
uh, you know, typically we'd have a service at 9.30 and then a prayer meeting or a Bible study or what we call Discipleship Connect at 11 a.m. Um, today, we've done the schedule differently. We're starting here um, at, we started at 11 a.m. And so we don't have anything after this time. Usually we'd have a prayer meeting this first Sunday of the month. Um, can I just encourage you, if, if you're not going to be slipping out um, and moving on uh, for lunch and other things, if you're going to be talking with someone else, maybe consider just taking a few moments to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. You take a few moments to do that together. The second thing I just want to share with you is, is that this new year, um, I'm excited about um, uh, evangelism training that we're going to be doing. Um, this will be the first time that we're doing this format, but we're going to have, um, for any of those that are interested, we're going to have a small group um, probably gather in like a circle and read the word together and pray together and, and talk about evangelism and and um, what it looks like, and then go practice it together. We have, a, we have a number of men and women in our church that are really gifted evangelists, and I praise God for you, um, and I'm thankful that they're going to be a part of that, helping to, um, uh, to both instruct, exhort, and then exemplify um, sharing the gospel. If that's something that you're like really fearful about, or I just don't know how it's supposed to work, but I want to, God has put that in my heart. I have that compassion. I encourage you, come talk to me. Um, we'll, we'll be setting up that, and, and we'll let you know about when that will take place this year. Um, we'll do it a series of, of, um, of sessions there for the, uh, for the workshop or whatever we're going to call it. Happy New Year. Um, I pray that this year is an uh, incredible year and that you look back a year from now um, saying, wow, I, I was able to go out into the harvest field and I don't know that I necessarily reaped the harvest, but I watered, I sowed, I shared the hope of Jesus Christ. So may God help us to do that. Thank you. I love you all. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.